0: Homelessness. The tragedy of thousands of people sleeping on the streets has become almost synonymous with San Francisco. Indeed, we've become almost as well-known for tents on the streets as we are for the Golden Gate Bridge and cable cars. We're also a city controlled by only one political party, and I'm guessing you know what it is. Yep, leaders in various shades of blue run our entire city government and control our $600 million-plus budget for homeless services. What if there's a connection between those things? Many San Franciscans recoil at the idea of conservatism in the Republican Party due to a belief that liberals are generous and open-minded and conservatives are heartless and cruel. But the fact is that homelessness and all of the suffering that goes with it has exploded in our city under democratic leadership. Maybe it's time to consider approaches from the other side of the ideological divide. Michelle Steve, who ran a program for homeless women and children for 13 years, will challenge the popular misconception that conservatives don't care about the poor. If we are serious about turning things around in this city, maybe it's time to listen to people like Michelle, who have helped thousands of people transition out of homelessness and enter the mainstream of American life. My name is Jenny Feldman, and I'm a member of the Breonna Society. I spoke with Michelle recently about what we are getting wrong about our approach to helping the homeless. Good morning, Michelle. I wanted to speak with you for the Briona Society podcast because you have a unique perspective on the crisis of homelessness. Everyone who lives in or visits San Francisco can see that we have a massive problem. Since 2016, San Francisco has spent over $2.8 billion on homelessness, yet the number of people experiencing homelessness here has skyrocketed. Just last week, our Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing prepared a report stating that it would cost an additional $1.45 billion over the next three years on top of our baseline spending to create shelter and housing for all. Every San Franciscan knows that we have a crisis, but not everyone knows about the policy choices that got us to this place. And that is why you're here. Allow me to introduce you. Michelle Steeb is a senior fellow with the Texas Public Policy Foundation and the author of the book, Answers Behind the Red Door, Battling the Homeless Epidemic. For 13 years, she was the executive director of St. John's Program for Real Change in Sacramento. St. John's is Northern California's largest, most comprehensive residential change program for homeless women and children. At St. John's, Michelle helped thousands of women and their families transition out of homelessness. St. John's took a rehabilitative, treatment first approach. I'd like to talk about policy today, but before we do that, Michelle, I wonder if you could tell us about your background and how you came to lead St. John's.
1: Sure. Thank you, Jenny, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion. I, in 2006, lost my grandfather, and it was very troubling for me because I just felt like I Hadn't spent enough time with him. I wasn't back then, email and cell phones were not as, especially at his era, not as common. So, but my grandfather was really active in his church. So I went to my church and said, you know, I really want to do something to help the nonprofit through the church. And my pastor said, oh, gosh, you know, there's an organization that we started back in 1985 called St. John's Shelter, and they need board members. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. And at that time, I was running the public affairs for the California Chamber of Commerce. I could very quickly see that they needed more business acumen as an organization And I began bringing more board members that brought that acumen to the board. But in December of that year, again, 2006, we hit a wall. Our executive director at the time was on vacation, unreachable for two weeks. And our board chair got a call saying, we don't have enough money to make payroll. The food truck isn't coming because we hadn't paid that bill, then he called me and I said, Let me go over there. I can leave right now and I can try and get an assessment of what's going on. And I did that and I pulled together the staff. We were very small at that time. And I said, Look, here's what we know thus far. We bounced two payroll checks, the food truck, right? I actually ended up putting all that on my credit card. Oh, my goodness. But in that discussion with the staff, I just had a very strong calling. While the work I was doing at the chamber was important, I loved my job. It was not nearly as important as what lie in front of me. and. I went back to the board chair and I said, I really feel like I want to do this. I feel like I want to leave my job and run St. John's. And I went to my boss at the time, the CEO of the chamber, and (laughs) I think he thought I was having a, a momentary lapse in reality or judgment or whatever. And he said, why don't you just take the month of December and I'll match your vacation that you have and just... Go over there and fix it. And then, you know, come back and we'll start 2007 anew. And I did take his advice. So I joined as a volunteer for that month, but I never looked back. I went in on January 2nd and 2007 and told him I would be leaving to join St. John's as its executive director. And it was, again, loved my job at the chamber, but it was by far the best decision I had ever professionally made. Right.
0: So tell us about who was being served by St. John's. What was the client profile?
1: Sure. And let me talk about it back then at the beginning and then where it evolved to in the 13 years. So women and children, it was the profile. Some of the women were without children. They had maybe lost temporarily lost custody of those children, but primarily it was women with children. At that point, it was 100 women and children, and we were a very traditional emergency shelter, meaning we could serve them for a 30 day period. What happened in my second week at St. John's was I had a woman named Katie and her daughter Tori come in. And a couple days later, Katie's sister, Shelly, came in with her two boys. And I was shocked to learn that they were sisters. And what was even more shocking was that back in the 80s, the late 80s, they had actually lived at St. John's with their mom. And it was at that point that I said, we have got to do something very different here. We can't, providing emergency shelter for 30 days is important, but it is not going to help change the trajectory of these women and children's lives.
0: When you're seeing intergenerational suffering like that.
1: Exactly, exactly. And we saw so much of it at St. John's. I can't even tell you how many women I know that started using with their mom at 13 or 14 years old, the domestic violence, and how many cousins and parents and kids we served over the years. I mean, it just, I have many stories in the book that, include the kind of family generational patterns. So so anyway, at that point, we started looking at what we needed to do as an organization to really help change the trajectory of these lives and began building out what is now a 12 to 18 month program that helps women and children comprehensively deal with all of the injuries and issues that they have not been able to deal with on their own. So we have a mental health department with licensed clinicians who work with them, you know, from everything from just counseling to medication, if that's needed. We have a drug and alcohol unit to help them with their sobriety. We bring in AA and NA on site. We also facilitate once they're in the program for a certain period of time. We facilitate them getting to off-site meetings, which are really important connection for them once they leave St. John's, right? To have that outside meeting that they can continue with. We help them with employment training. So most of our women had never held a steady job, maybe even never a job. Let alone were they able to be self-sustaining. So we. Open two restaurants and a daycare program that were all publicly serving businesses, but their primary function was to provide our women with job skills and get them to a place where they could actually gain and maintain employment. We provide all the child care necessary, all the transportation. The public transportation system in Sacramento is very inadequate, and it takes hours to get a place that it would take you 10 to 15 minutes to drive to. So we did all the transportation. We had life skill classes, domestic violence classes and counseling, money management, which was a huge component for our women it none of them really had any sort of most of them never had a bank account or at least at the point that they came to us so all of that we brought in-house into the place where the women and children actually lived and that was a really important component because in a system that is decentralized which is most of the homeless system out there now it's housing in one location And if there's even access to services, they're far away. I don't want to spend too much time on this point, but it's really, really important. So a case manager at St. John's, because they were co-located with the women where the women lived, a case manager could probably in a day see somewhere between 10 and 16 clients In a decentralized system where case management is maybe downtown and the housing is somewhere else, case management may be able to travel to where that housing is, but they maybe can do two to four, maybe five appointments in a day.
0: Right. So having everything in-house is so much more efficient.
1: It is so much more cost efficient and it's so much more effective because in our model, as a case manager, I may sit down with you, Jenny, for a half an hour. And that'll give me some really important information. But then I, because I'm co-located with all the other staff, I can walk over to the drug and al- alcohol counselor and say, hey, Jenny, you know, let me talk to you about Jenny. You know, I'm a little concerned about X, Y, or Z. And then I can also go over to the child care people and say, you know what, how are Jenny's kids doing? Because I'm a little concerned about this. And then I can go over to the employment training person who is spending, you know, six to eight hours a day with these people. And they're going to see a whole nother side of our clients that, you know, our case managers might see in a half hour appointment. So that sharing of information is so critical to help fuel the healing and the growing process that happens so effectively in an environment like St. John's.
0: I mean, it makes so much sense. It almost seems shocking that we've moved that there are institutions that don't follow that model, but we'll get to that. So one aspect of your book that I found so moving was the stories of women who had transformed their lives, particularly people who had started from a very hopeless place, women who were experiencing addiction, who had perhaps lost custody of their children. I wonder if maybe you could just tell us the story of one of those women who, in your mind, exemplifies the success of St. John's.
1: Yeah, there's 11 stories in the book, and so many more that I could have talked about. But to your question, well, let me step back and say, in terms of issue demographics, everyone is different. Everyone at St. John's, while they all followed a program, their program looked very unique. But I do want to say 80% of our women, 78% struggled with substance abuse disorder addiction, about 70% with domestic violence, about 70% with forms of mental illness. 65% had criminal histories. 50% didn't have a high school diploma or GED, right? So there was a myriad of issues that the majority of our women were facing. I would say, again, there's so many great stories, but one story that I'll, since we talked about the generational aspects, we had a woman named Mary who came in to St. John's. Mary was a probably at that point in her 40s, maybe 50s, had left a domestic violence relationship. Her daughter, Michelle, was struggling mightily with another domestic violence relationship and addiction. Probably a month or two months after Mary came in. Michelle, her daughter, came in. Michelle's story is is in the book. But then after Michelle came in, it turns out Michelle had cousins who were also struggling with much of the same domestic violence addiction. So Michelle's cousin Tamara came in. And then a couple months later, I can't remember exactly how how much time, then uh, Tamara's mom, Diana, came in. <laughs> so I do weave their stories all into Michelle's in the book, but it really is a, a story that illustrates the generational cycle that is now much more prevalent in homelessness than it ever has been. Data shows this, and I certainly experienced it at St. John's. But Michelle came in with her three, at that point, I think it was three children, She thought she knew it all, which is not uh, uncommon, especially for the younger folks who come into our program, and really was resistant to change at the beginning. But she took my positive thinking class, which everyone took at the beginning of their time at St. John's, and she had a moment where she realized, you know, if I was doing it the right way, I certainly wouldn't be in the place that I'm in right now and she really started opening up and then absorbing everything she could in order to learn a different way. She excelled in our in our restaurant, in our employment training program, went off and got a job outside of St. John's, but then we brought her back and she about a year later and she rose to the ranks of our head chef at the residential site and was so inspirational to the women there but also to all of us who you know watched her come from sure from some pretty, you know, low depths and she met a gentleman through her actually we shopped at this one place and anyway he worked there and now they're married and they have six kids combined and they own a home they're in uh, Massachusetts outside of Boston and doing so fantastically well and Michelle is doing such a great job with her children her mom ended up moving out there with them and i'm really proud to say that her mom is doing well and then her cousin tamara and tamara's mom diana they're all doing well they needed to know how to do things differently and that's just not an intuitive thing in many families like i just described
0: right right Oh, that's just incredible so, Michelle, as you explain in your book, the federal government is the single largest funder of programs for the homeless. And since 2013, the federal policy response to homelessness has focused on housing first. Housing first is a non rehabilitative approach. It is defined by the Department of Housing and Urban Development as permanent housing without preconditions and barriers to entry, such as sobriety, treatment, or service participation requirements. California adopted Housing First in 2016. Following the shift to Housing First, the county of Sacramento canceled its annual contract with St. John's. And the county criticized St. John's for several reasons. I'd like to go through them because I think they reflect the Housing First philosophy and its flaws. So first, the county criticized St. John's because it did not serve men. It only served women and children. What's your response to that?
1: I can't help but chuckle.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) St. John's had been in existence for, you know, since 1985. And this was, geez, Louise, 35, 37 years later. And we only ever served women and children, number one. Number two, we were full. We were turning 300 women and children away a day. And the fact that they would want us to reserve place for men. When there were women and children sleeping on the streets or in cars is crazy. But number three, as I said earlier, the majority of our women and children experience domestic violence. The risk of bringing in men that you can't screen, because under Housing First, you should not be screening anyone. You should just be letting anyone who wants to come in, who doesn't want to follow rules, come in. The risk that we would have been taking to expose these women and children to further violence or addiction, it was a no-go. I mean, it's just, it's laughable.
0: Right. And that bumps into the next criticism was that St. John's did perform screening, which is not allowed under Housing First.
1: That's correct. And again, because the women and children in our program had suffered so much in terms of domestic violence in terms of addiction, in terms of just the uncertainty and the fear that comes with not having a stable place to live, we needed to make sure that we protected them from any further exposure to any of those kinds of things. And so we did screen. And we also screened because we wanted to make sure you know, when I say screen, I mean, we got to know clients and we allowed them to get to know us and to understand that we were a place that did require sobriety, that did have rules, that did have responsibilities, and that had the goal of getting them to be able to be self-sustaining. And if they didn't want that, we needed to know that during that screening process. So yes, we did screen and I don't know if they still do, but I hope to God they do.
0: Right. 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 St. John's was also criticized for being a high barrier shelter. It seems that that's a big distinction now, the high barrier versus low barrier. Can you explain what high barrier means and why it was important to St. John's that to have rules and to be high barrier?
1: Yes. So, you know, let me just say, and I said this to all of our women, again, I taught one of the first classes, positive thinking. And I said, how many of you would invite hundreds of Women and children into your home and not have any rules and not have anyone take any responsibility for anything that needs to happen to keep that home looking nice. So, number one, we want an environment that is calm and clean and organized for them to be able to heal and grow. And we want them to understand the benefits of that for their future, right? When they have their own home and want to. Make sure that there's order and productivity and cleanliness in their home. So, we did have rules and roles and responsibilities that not only kept their home nice the t- during the time that they were living with us, but that were also necessary for them to understand as they moved into self sustainability. You cannot It is very, very hard to function in society if you're not willing to adhere to rules, if you're not willing to play the part that you're playing, that you need to take responsibility for. And so we would be doing them a disservice to not have that kind of structure and and
0: responsibility
1: at St. John's.
0: Right. And so one of the major rules that you implemented was a sobriety requirement. Some people may be surprised to find that shelters nowadays are not, under housing first, are not allowed to require sobriety. Can you talk about why you did require sobriety and the importance of that? I'm going to say
1: two things. One is, yes, we got criticized by the county as being high barrier, but 75% of the women that came in, so 78% had addiction issues. 75% of that 78 came in testing positive for some sort of substance. So it's not that we didn't let them in upon testing positive. It's that we required them to stay sober. And the county didn't think that was a great idea. And by the way, this is the county now that has experienced the highest increase in the nation in homelessness, almost 70% in 2022 over 20. And it's because they bought into this absolute disaster of a policy. But anyway, so the reality is we did require sobriety because it was protective of the women and children we served and because 78% of our women struggled with addiction. And you cannot maintain sobriety if you are surrounded by people who are not doing the same, number one. Number two, our goal was to get them to be self-sustaining. To be self-sustaining, you need a job. To get a job, you have to pass a drug test. You have to be able to maintain your job. And if you're continually abusing drugs or alcohol, you're not going to be able to maintain your job. And that means you're not going to be able to maintain your housing. And that means you're not going to be able to maintain your kids. So it is a fundamental part of the puzzle that is now being disregarded completely. And that's why we're seeing the disasters we're seeing in San Francisco and Sacramento, and in so many other places across the country who have abandoned sobriety requirements in the name of
0: choice and compassion. Right, so advocates of Housing First often refer to housing retention as a success metric. We hear that all the time. Well, we know what works, housing works. But in your book, you talk about why housing retention is not really the right thing to measure. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. So under Housing First, really the only metric that is measured is did someone who received permanent housing stay in that housing for six months? There's a couple cases where they, they measure it beyond. But that is, in my mind, only one piece of what needs to be measured in terms of success. At St. John's, we measured things like, did someone stay sober? Were they receiving the mental health treatment they needed in order to live more productively and parent more successfully? Were they able to get rid of debts and fines? So many of our women came into our program with tremendous debts and fines because they weren't taking care of them when they were living out there. They didn't have the capability to take care of them. They didn't have the income. They weren't in the right frame of mind, whatever it was. So did they resolve those debts and fines, which is really important to do before they get into housing? Did they complete employment training? Did they get a job? Were they able to increase income in that job over time? Are their kids in school? Are they doing better in school? Are they? Performing well. And we measured so much. You know, did they complete the budgeting class? Did they open a bank account? Do they have savings, right? These are all the things that we were measuring that combined constituted success. And some people were better in some areas than others, just like we see in life. You know, your neighbors are not all fantastic with finances, but they're fantastic in other areas, right? But all of this combined needs to be measured in in terms of determining success. The other issue I will say that is really important, there's a new study. It's a, a study that followed the chronically homeless for f- 14 years. It was released, I think, in 2019, but it didn't get, you know, a lot of publicity. But anyway, it's relatively new and it followed these chronically homeless placed in permanent housing for 14 years. And after five years, less than 50% were in that housing and I think like 35% were still alive because they got put in housing, meaning they were isolated in that housing, which is a very dangerous thing to do for someone struggling with severe mental illness and addiction. They were allowed to continue to wallow in that misery, whether it be mental illness or addiction or both they were allowed to choose whether or not they wanted services and most of them won't do that there's a disease that i talk about in the book called anosognosia which is a deficit of self awareness and estimates are that you know somewhere between 50 and 70% of those struggling with addiction and mental illness have anosognosia so they don't even know how sick they are and they're not going to choose help in that kind of a frame of mind. So the Boston study was the first ever to look at what happens when we house people in isolation without requiring sobriety, without service requirements. And if that's the definition of success, I think we all need to look at moving out of the country. Right.
0: I think there was a report in the San Francisco Chronicle that of the drug overdose deaths that occurred in San Francisco last year I believe 40% of them took place within permanent supportive housing units.
1: Yes, I read that too. Yes. Yeah,
0: people were taking their use inside and they were dying.
1: Yes, and the reality is and I talk to people all the time that the homeless all the time that's for those who stay in. Many leave because they miss their friends. It is not good, like I said earlier to isolate People that are struggling with severe mental illness and addiction, which by its nature, Housing First does. It says, I'm putting you in a, your own permanent housing unit for life without any requirements. I will say, you know, we talked about the St. John's model earlier. The communal aspect at St. John's, again, where all the residential is together and combined with services, that is a very, very important. Aspect to our success. And the reason is, is we all need community. All of us. I do, you do. We're never going to be as good without our community. And so many of the women in the case of St. John's who came in, they needed to get rid of their quote unquote communities, right? Their right. support networks. And that's really hard to do, but it's especially hard to do if you don't have a new one you can build. And the the communal nature of St. John's, which is, again, a super important element to success, really allowed them to build new support networks of people that were all working towards the same goals of being self-sustaining and leading very different lives. And it's uh, completely ignored under the Housing First model.
0: So federal spending under Housing First has just exploded. It's doubled since the policy was first enacted here in San Francisco. Spending has almost tripled since 2016. And yet we still have this catastrophe on our streets. And the people who seem to be leading the policy discussion are asking for more money and asking to acquire and build more permanent supportive housing units and to and the saying that this is what works. We just need more of it. Why do you think housing first has failed to produce results and how can we change the course on this?
1: Well, it's failed to produce results because of a lot of what we've talked about. I mean, the people that are that struggle with homelessness, and whether it be it led to their struggle or is a result of their struggle, that doesn't matter. Close to 80% of the people who are homeless today Are struggling with severe mental illness and and, an addiction. I shouldn't say severe. I mean, in some cases, it's severe, but it's prohibiting them from leading productive lives. And so, to the policy, completely ignores those underlying issues. And and another important thing that people don't realize when the Obama administration rolled Housing First out as a one size fits all solution in 2013. They completely defunded services. You no longer, HUD no longer had money for alcohol and drug counseling, for mental health, for employment training, none of that. All of it went into housing subsidies. So all the data shows okay, you know, at at the federal level, from 2014 to 2019, as Housing First was rolled out, we increased spending, like you said, by 200%. We increased permanent supportive housing unit subsidies by 42.7%, but homelessness, unsheltered homelessness went up by 20.5%, and overall homelessness by almost 16%. So it clearly... That was during a pretty robust economy. Mm-hmm. California had similar results. You know, we increased spending by at least a hundred percent. They passed housing first in 2016. As since, you know, then and pre-COVID data, because I really like to use pre-COVID data because the left will use any excuse to blame this all on COVID. And certainly COVID is created some other challenges but this was happening in a, you know all during a robust economy. So in California we increased the number of permanent supportive housing unit subsidies by over 33%, we increased spending by 100% yet homelessness went up by unsheltered homelessness went up by 47%. It's been a manifest disaster. Right. And what do we do to change it? We have got to demand our elected officials to shift course. Because again, this funding that comes from HUD, which is distributed largely through the local levels, it is dominant, it's the dominant funding. And that's why the County of Sacramento went to the housing first model because most of their money was coming from HUD. They made the decision to align the general fund dollars with HUD too, and that is their fault. But, you know, we really have got to demand of our elected officials to shift course. And, you know, Housing First may have a role in homelessness, but we really need to be looking at solutions that help people become better. And not right. all of them are gonna be able to be self-sustaining, but the, I, I can tell you, and I wrote about this in the book, I did a bell curve. I very much believe at least 80 if not 90% of the homeless can at least be some partially self-sustaining, if not fully self-sustaining. But right now there's no incentive to do that and there's no support to do that.
0: Right, right. You know, one of the things that appealed to me about the treatment approach that you describe at St. John's and also treatment first programs generally is the sense of hope that they cultivate, the real belief that self-sufficiency is possible for many, or as you say, even most people. And by contrast, there seems to be this cynicism to Housing First that basically says, you're hopeless. Like, this is all we can expect of you. You'll never be able to take care of yourself. You'll never be able to get sober or get a job. So here's your free housing for life. Bye-bye.
1: Imagine if we ran our households this way. Sons and daughters, you're never going to be able to get a job. You're never going to be able to be good at sports. You're never going to... It's craziness. I believe it's the most oppressive thing we've done in this century is to have a policy that keeps people down versus uplifts, inspires, and, and helps them to develop their innate
0: God-given potential. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Michelle, I wonder if you could, um, if we could just close by, if you have any positive thoughts about leaders aside from yourself, of course, who are doing important work in this area or people we should be listening to legislation, we should keep an eye out for anything like that. Thank you
1: for the question. There's so many good people that are starting to come together. You know, a lot of us, we suffered quietly and we had to suffer quietly and I can say this in terms of St. John's, because the, the more we spoke out about losing our funding from the county in 2017, the more we were ostracized by, you know, electeds and the quote unquote advocates, because they all believed that the housing first approach was the way to go. So there are so many people who really understand innately how flawed this is, but they are silenced because they don't wanna fight the advocates or they don't wanna risk losing funding. But there's a bunch of us that are starting to come together and unify our voices. And by doing so, we're gonna be much more effective in pushing back against this and getting policy change. But I will say Representative Andy Barr at the congressional level is fantastic on this issue. He's introduced uh, legislation last year that they're really hoping to push in this Congress this year called Housing Plus. People can Google it. It is a very positive step in the right direction in terms of taking HUD's pot of homelessness money, allowing about a third of it to be used for programs like St. John's that have requirements but have success as well and to allow those funds to be used to help support programs like St. John's. And there's so many, there's Haven for Hope and San Antonio and many across the country that I write about who really can do so much more by having access to these federal dollars. So I highly recommend people Google that and support the congressman and his efforts to get this passed in this new Congress. I will also say there's a coalition coming together and I I can't speak about it right now, but pretty soon we'll have a name and we'll have a website and we'll be starting to push out a lot of information to help educate people and help arm them with their, their elected officials to really fuel this policy change that is so needed. So in the meantime, people can access my website, which is michellesteve.com. I'm writing a lot of articles, but also posting other articles and research that people can access. They can reach out to me with any questions or concerns, but I'm really excited about this upcoming coalition and would love to um, send this information
0: to you as soon as we have it all dialed. Well, that sounds fantastic, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Briona Society. I really think that although this, the crisis of homelessness in San Francisco is particularly acute, all of us need to be paying more attention at uh, what's going on and how we can bring about change. And you're really playing a really important part in that. So thank you so much for joining us today and hope you have a great day.
1: Thank you, Jenny. Look forward to staying connected.